Our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that there will be no greater desire within us than to know you, to know your voice, and to follow you. Your word tells us that you are the good shepherd. Lord, make our desire to be your sheep, to follow you in obedience and humility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the passages that is most widely loved in the whole Bible and probably most widely recognized is the psalm that we just listened to, Psalm 23. Uh, In this beautiful psalm, uh, David, who spent many years himself as a shepherd, he likened himself to a sheep and God to a shepherd who cares deeply for his flock, who provides for their every need, who guides them uh, in accordance with his will, where he wants them to go, and who never leaves their side. And this is one of those passages that doesn't offend anybody. It doesn't offend anybody. Reflecting on the shepherd-like qualities of God gave David confidence and comfort for the present and for the future. Knowing what he knew, knowing what David knew about God, he finishes the psalm by saying, surely, surely, not maybe, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I would ask you today, friends, is this your view of God? Is the Lord your shepherd? When you think about all that you know and all that you understand about God, does it give you confidence for today and tomorrow? Does it give you comfort as you consider the uncertain nature of life and our existence? See, David knew what the demands of the job of shepherding were. He knew the differences between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. And as one reaches the end of the psalm, I think it's impossible to overlook the fact that David has just described for us a very, very good shepherd. A perfect shepherd, in fact. He has described the good shepherd. Because all the qualities that he describes are exemplified perfectly in God. Now as we looked at the 10th chapter of the book of Zechariah last week, we saw that God had seen the hearts of his people. He had seen how they had gone and sought idols and false teachers for things like comfort and assurance. And while God said that he would surely judge them, he had words that increased in harshness and hostility for the spiritual leaders among the people. He said, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. So I hope you see the contrast between the good shepherd in Psalm 23 and the bad shepherds that we saw in Zechariah chapter 10 and we'll see in this chapter today, chapter 11. I have to wonder if David maybe, or if Jesus maybe had David's words from Psalm 23 in mind when he referred to himself as the good shepherd. As we saw last week, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He said, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says this, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That's from John chapter 10, verses 11 to 16. So let's remember that the book of Zechariah had actually started decades prior to what we're reading now. Uh, Decades prior to the point in which Zechariah is now prophesying. 
And the words throughout the book gave comfort and assurance and encouragement to the people who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. The remnant had returned to rebuild the city and God's words through Zechariah encouraged them and drove them and and spoke to them. But this is decades later. This is decades later, maybe as much as 60 years later. A whole generation has passed, a new generation has been born, and they had begun falling into the same tendencies that we see throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament. And of course, we would see when Nehemiah came that the place, they they hadn't read a word of scripture in years, and so there's a short-lived revival under Nehemiah, but by the end of the book, the wall's built, but their faith is gone. The Lord's warning to the shepherds in Zechariah 10 reveals that many of them themselves were actually wolves who had sought prey among the Lord's sheep. The spiritual leadership at the end of Zechariah's day was failing, and they were failing badly. And yet the Lord promised that he would call his sheep to him from among the nations, and they would follow him. As Jesus said, they would hear his voice, they would know his voice, they would follow Christ. And as we saw that this was the gospel message that he was talking about that would go out among the nations. This is the sovereign and effectual calling of the elect from every nation unto himself. Jerusalem had been rebuilt mostly in Zechariah's day, but because of the hard-heartedness of the people toward God and because of their persistence and their insistence in following bad shepherds, he now tells of a future destruction of the city as we continue examining the oracle of the word of the Lord, which started back at the beginning of the ninth chapter. Now, if you've been following along in this study, you've seen promises and promises and promises, and there's a a sharp turn here because now he's turning to threats. He's telling them what's going to happen because of their continued faithlessness. So we read in verses 1 to 3, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. There are a lot of scholars who believe that these verses probably should have been tacked on to the end of chapter 10. And maybe yes, maybe no, they're closely connected to what was said in the previous chapter. As you can see in your Bibles, it's still indented. So it's, it's a continuation of what we read in the previous chapter. And yet this is also a transition to what comes next. The Lord himself had promised to come as the good shepherd in the previous chapter And yet he knew that he would be rejected. He knew that the people would reject him. John writes in his account of Christ's incarnation, of his stepping out of eternity. He says in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he was in the world, talking about Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So knowing that this rejection was coming, Zechariah gives these three verses which tell us what is to come as a result of their rejection of Christ, the good shepherd. Verses 1 and 2 identify three types of trees that were well known in the ancient world. Do you see them? Verses 1 and 2, we see trees which throughout the Old Testament scriptures represented strong leaders, durable leaders, powerful leaders. And the three, three trees that we see identified in these two verses are, of course, you see the cedar, the cypress, and oaks. And what does the Lord tell Zechariah, tell us through Zechariah, about these trees? He says, the glorious trees are ruined. They are spoiled. They are destroyed. Though they were many, like a thick forest, they have been felled. They've been chopped down to rot and to decay. 
And to what does all of this refer? What, what's this even talking about? Is this talking about literal trees? No. Remember, this is poetry, so it's symbolic. Again, this is referring to the spiritual leadership in Israel. God is saying, the day is coming when they will be taken down. And the response of the shepherds, look at verse 3. Look what verse 3 says. It says they wail. Why are they wailing? Because their glory is ruined. God's glory isn't ruined. God's glory is never ruined. Make no mistake about it. Nothing can defile God's glory in any way. The leaders to whom God is referring here are not under the impression that God's glory is under assault. In fact, they couldn't care less about God's glory. And so they're wailing. They're crying out with a deep sense of loss and mourning because their own glory is ruined. Now, the Hebrew word that gets translated as glory here literally means cloak or garment. This is not talking about glory in the sense of, of the Lord's glory, like when, uh, when Moses sees, uh, sees the burning bush and he requests of God, I, I pray, show me thy glory. That Hebrew word is kavod. Uh, this Hebrew word is adareth. So these are different words, and we shouldn't confuse the two words. The latter, the word that we see here in Zechariah chapter 11 refers to a royal garment of a king. It symbolizes position, power, prestige. And God is telling the people through Zechariah that these people are going to lose all of these things. Their glory will be ruined. Their power, position, and prestige will be taken away from them. It'll be gone. See, the problem with human leaders is that they all fall short. They're sinners, just like everybody else. They must both look and direct others to the one who stands above and beyond themselves, and even when they do that, they don't really do it proper service. The degree to which a leader does this points to the Lord, points to the one who is sovereign above himself, the degree to which a leader does that is the degree to which he succeeds as a leader. Human leaders themselves always fall short. Not sometimes, always. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about a pastor, a father, maybe talking about a president, a boss, whatever the case may be. Leaders, human leaders, always fall short to some extent. But these leaders that God has identified here in Zechariah had failed because they hadn't looked or directed others to the one who reigns sovereignly over humanity, the earth, and all of creation. They had trusted in themselves rather than trusting in and following the Lord. Further, we see that there are three areas of land that are identified in this passage. If you look at verses 1 to 3, you can see them. Verse 1, Lebanon. Verse 2, Bashan. Verse 3, Jordan. And if you know the geography of Israel, you would know that this is talking about a, a, a direct sweep. This is going from the north to the south. What he's saying is that God's judgment is going to sweep from the north down to the south going to sweep across the land. And the bad shepherds, the wicked and foolish leaders who thought themselves to be wise and who in their pride refused to trust in the Lord, they would be judged. And they would lose their position, their prestige, and their power. Now we have to understand that this is not an indication of God's judgment leaving his sheep without a shepherd, without a leader. Rather, this is part of what would have been the future fulfillment of what we saw back in chapter 10. He's pointing the people and us to their need and, and to our need for the greater leader, the greatest leader, for the good shepherd, a shepherd who will never fail, a shepherd who isn't tainted or corrupted by the effects of sin in any way, and who is himself capable of leading in a way that human shepherds simply cannot. And he wouldn't lead by pointing 
to one who is above himself, but by himself being the one who is above. The one who sovereignly reigns over every single molecule in the universe and who calls and who cares and who provides for his people and who rescues his people from the clutches of sin. So verses 1 to 3 give us poetic imagery of a very real, literal judgment which was to come and which was fulfilled Most scholars think, and I I agree, it was fulfilled by the events that took place in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, when General Titus led the Roman army into Jerusalem and they leveled the city, they burned it to the ground and they destroyed the temple in the city and not one stone stood on another. Exactly in the way that Jesus had prophesied. Jerusalem has not been the same ever since. Israel has not been the same ever since. This judgment came through man, but only because God, who is sovereign over everything, had decreed it. Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you and you're following along, you'll probably notice that there is a change when we come to verse 4. Do you see that? It was probably indented or something before uh, in verses 1 to 3 and in the previous chapter. Uh, But now at verse 4, it goes back to normal spacing from margin to margin. That indicates a change in genre once again. The previous part was poetry, but now as we come to verse 4, we're returning to what's called historical narrative. So let's continue starting with verse 4, going uh, verse 4 to verse 7. We read, Thus said the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. So there's another change of gears going on here. In the previous verses, uh, the Lord was addressing all of Israel. And at this point, he's only addressing Zechariah. He's speaking to Zechariah. And there are times throughout the Old Testament in which God would command a prophet to act out a message, act out some type of scenario that would convey a message. For example, Hosea was to marry an unfaithful woman as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Ezekiel was instructed to lay on his side for three, his left side for 390 days and his right side for the next 40 days. And God would do these things. He would, he would, he would command his prophets to do these things to show his people what they were doing in a way that they could understand. They're called living parables or living prophecies. And so here in Zechariah 11, God instructs Zechariah to become a living prophecy, to become a living picture of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who was to come. Now we should, we should understand, before we continue, we should understand that the remainder of this chapter is very, very difficult. In fact, it is perhaps the most difficult chapter in the entire Bible to understand and to interpret correctly. John MacArthur notes of this chapter, he said, quote, I've studied a lot of chapters in the Bible. It's probably an understatement. I don't think I ever studied one that's more difficult than this one, end quote. Another commentator notes, Zechariah 11 may be the most difficult and controversial chapter of the entire book, the most enigmatic passage in the whole Old Testament, end quote. And so what do you do when you come to a passage or or a chapter like this, and it's really hard to understand, and you're struggling with it, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense? First of all, we have to know that it must in some way 
point us as the reader to Christ. In some way, it must direct us to him. It builds into a larger narrative that does that, or the verse itself points right to him. One commentator notes of this chapter, he says, quote, Zechariah 11 was a key text for the early church's understanding of Christ's ministry, end quote. So that's important. This passage makes absolutely no sense if we don't keep in mind that it points to Christ. So that's the first thing. Whenever you come to a difficult passage, know that some way, in some way it points to Christ. Secondly, and this is also very important, we must intentionally avoid getting too caught up in the minute details when you come across a passage that's difficult to understand. And so you stick with what you know, what we know for sure, and what is important. And when we do speculate, we recognize that it's speculation and we keep ourselves open to the possibility that our speculation is mistaken. There's a lot of bad theology out there that's built on way too much speculation. So we want to prevent ourselves from doing that. So when we speculate, we realize we're speculating and we stick to what we know. So the purpose of this living story, Zechariah, acting out this role of a shepherd is to tell us that judgment is coming upon the people, upon the nation of Israel. As we know, by the time of Christ's day, the leadership in Israel was horribly corrupt, horribly corrupt. And so he confronts them over and over again because they're so corrupt. They're such hypocrites. They were hypocrites who knew what the word of God said without having the slightest idea of what it actually meant. And Christ tells them, it all points to me, and you've missed it. Christ would have healed them if they would have just humbled themselves and sought the truth from the God that they pretended to serve. But their incessant pride would not yield to him. Jesus said to these spiritual leaders, John 5, verses 39 and 40, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, about Jesus. And he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The leadership of Israel, by Christ's day, had become tyrants who didn't care one iota about the flock. They used their offices for the sake of personal gain. And so they imposed these legalistic laws and regulations on the collective conscience of the sheep, adding laws where God had not, adding regulations where God had not. And so instead of feeding the flock of God, they were fleecing the flock of God. And this is exactly what God describes to Zechariah here. There's a flock, and the shepherds are abusing them. They don't love them. They don't love the sheep. They're using the flock for their own personal gain in some way. They're selling them off in the sense that they aren't actually leading them or directing the people to the one true living God. They're like shepherds who would sell a sheep or two here and there to a butcher just to make a quick and easy buck. And if I can be blunt for just a moment here, if the Lord is not your shepherd, whichever shepherd you're following is leading you to the butcher. If the Lord is not your shepherd, I pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see your predicament, to see that you are just in line to go to the butcher. These bad shepherds didn't actually care about what may have happened to the sheep or what became of them, as long as the sheep were serving the interests of these corrupt leaders, these bad shepherds. And not only that, but Zechariah is told of how they mocked God. As long as they're making money by abusing the sheep, what do they say? What does it say that they say? They say, blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich by fleecing the flock. You think this goes on today? 
Are there prominent spiritual leaders who are fleecing the flock, not for the sake of, not leading for the sake of honoring God, but for the sake of becoming rich at the sheep's expense? That's the prosperity gospel, right? This is a twisted variant of it that, that Zechariah is describing, but it comes from the same root as many of the false teachers of our own day. They're in it for the money. They're fleecing the flock because there's money to be made. And thus they're actually just mocking God. They're not serving God. They're mocking God. You have foolish, blind, lost people out there who think that health and prosperity are signs of God's favor. Like if you're just strong enough in your faith, you'll be rich and you'll be healthy. And when you're not, it's because you don't have enough faith. Everybody heard that before somewhere? It's a lie. It's a lie. Scripture shows us that those are two pieces of bait that Satan uses to lure people into following him. As John Piper says, quote, Prosperity cannot be a proof of God's favor since it is what the devil promises to those who worship him. Isn't that what he promised Jesus in the wilderness? when Jesus was being tempted? It is. God's judgment is harsh against spiritual leaders who abuse the sheep and are in it for the personal gain, whether it's financial or otherwise. God's judgment has always been harsh against such leaders. The good shepherd leads his sheep to still pure waters. The bad shepherd leads his sheep beside raging currents that will sweep the sheep away. And yet God has no mercy upon those who flock to these spiritual leaders either. Look at what God says in verse 6. He says, For I will, have, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land. The sheep had chosen their shepherds. And they were just as corrupt and just as defiled as the bad shepherds themselves were. So they brought their own destruction upon themselves. How? Idolatry. They're worshiping some other version of God, some smaller God. They are rejecting the one true living God. And in Jesus' time, they rejected Jesus. And in our day, they still do it. They still reject him. For those who buy into the prosperity gospel, they do it because prosperity is what they want. If they wanted the true living God, they wouldn't be going to a church in which the doctrine of health and wealth is exalted over the doctrines of God. They wouldn't be seeking wealth over righteousness. They wouldn't be sending enormous amounts of money to these swindlers in hopes of planting a seed that will come back to them a hundred times over like God is some surefire investment. And they would know that if you are living your best life now, it just means that you're going to hell and this world is the closest that you're ever going to come to heaven. God will not be mocked. So there's judgment upon the shepherds and there is judgment upon the sheep who follow these bad shepherds. And so what will God do to these people? Not the shepherds, but but the flock. He says, behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king and they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. And what did Zechariah do? He says, So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, and one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. A living parable. The shepherd's staff was used to direct the sheep, to discipline the sheep, to direct the sheep to where the shepherds wanted them to go, to discipline them when they stepped out of line, correcting them if It was necessary. Sometimes it would be used to rescue a wayward sheep. And Zechariah names one staff favor, symbolizing the blessing that came through obedience unto God. And this represents the covenant that God had made with the Jews through Moses. And the second staff he names union. What does union symbolize? 
What does it mean? As we'll find out later in the chapter, it represents the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Look at verse 8. Look at what what Zechariah writes in verse 8. He says, In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Now this is where it starts to get kind of tricky. Who are these three shepherds? Throughout history, interpreters, commentators, have uh, offered over 40 different ideas interpretations as to who these three might be. It seems likely that they tie back to what we read in verses 1 to 3, where three types of trees were going to be destroyed. And as I went through a couple dozen possible interpretations of of what these three shepherds are, there was one explanation that stood out to me as making the most sense. Who were the spiritual leaders of Israel? God had ordained, he had ordered that there would be three classes of leaders. Prophets, priests, and kings. And in every way possible, these three classes had failed to uphold their duties, their responsibilities before God. The kings of Israel wanted to be just like the nations around them, and so they turned to idols. The priests abused their positions for money and power. And even the prophets started saying only what was pleasing to the people and the kings. And one of the things that Jesus did was replace these three classes, these inadequate shepherds. There are no longer prophets, priests, or kings in Israel. Those offices were closed. They were done away with because they rejected the Messiah. They rejected God. They misled the people. Their duty was to lead the people to God, but because they had rejected the Messiah, it was impossible for them to lead people to God. They cannot speak for God because they don't believe in His Son. They cannot stand between man and God. And they cannot rule over the people in obedience unto God on God's behalf. Why? Because they rejected him. So those offices were closed. They were replaced by the good shepherd. And so in some way or sense, Zechariah, who's portraying Christ here, he destroys the three shepherds so that he himself could lead the sheep. What does that mean, to destroy the three shepherds? That's where you get caught up in too much speculation, honestly. We have no idea what that means. But in some sense, he destroys the three shepherds so that he himself can lead the sheep. But what happens when he does this? He says they became impatient. And he became impatient with their rejection of him. This is a prophetic picture of what would happen to Jesus. He would be rejected. He would be despised by men. When you think of all the reasons that people come up with for rejecting Jesus, what comes to mind? I mean, there's a lot of them. Some people don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is God. Some don't want to yield their lives to him. Some want some type of religiosity that demands more of them, a salvation by works, by human effort. Some want something that demands less of them. Some reject Jesus because they don't think he's loving enough. There are all kinds of reasons that people reject Jesus today. And those were the same reasons that he was rejected in the first century by the Jews as well. Nothing's changed. The human condition is the same. People come up with the same excuses today as they did then for rejecting Jesus. And yet, as Peter preached to the Jews, he said, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To reject the cornerstone is to reject salvation entirely. And Christ, as the cornerstone, was soundly soundly rejected by them. Do you see this? Even 
with the bad shepherds out of the way. They're done away with. They're not in the picture anymore. Even with them out of the way, the sheep still hate the shepherd, the good shepherd. And that's why God says that he will have no mercy, no pity upon them. Why were these bad shepherds prospering? Why did they have the power that they had? Why did they have the influence that they had? Because the sheep were following them. Because the sheep had rejected the good shepherd. And so Zechariah continues, verses 9 to 14. Zechariah says, So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is it to die? Let it die. What is it to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Those who rejected Christ would be rejected by Christ. And to this day, to this day, the person who rejects Christ will be rejected by Christ. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The surefire way to be rejected by Jesus is to reject Jesus. And so in light of this rejection, Zechariah breaks the staff called favor. He says that he annuls the covenant that he had made with all the peoples. Commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry notes, quote, the breaking of this staff signified the breaking of God's covenant, which he had made with all the people, the covenant of peculiarity made with all the tribes of Israel and all other people who, by being proselyted into their religion, were incorporated into their nation, end quote. And this is exactly, this is exactly what Paul describes in Romans chapter one, isn't it? Think about it. When people reject God continually, what does Romans chapter 1 tell us that he does with them? What does he do with such a person? He hands them over to their idols. He hands them over to the things that they covet, the things that they want more than they want him. Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? Because they were searching after something else. They wanted something else more than they wanted God. Romans one twenty four. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verses 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, what do they want more than God? God is handing them over to these things. Again, Romans 1.28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And this is exactly what God did with Israel. They rejected him continually, worshiping everything under the sun, but forsaking and despising God himself. And so he handed them over to their idols to the things that they wanted more than they wanted him. He handed them over to their passions. He gave them up to a debased mind. He annulled the Mosaic covenant. Jesus said, Matthew twenty one forty three. he said, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. This is serious discipline. But we must see the blessing 
in this. There is a deep and rich blessing right in the midst of this discipline. This doesn't mean that he once and for all rejects all of Israel. He didn't annul the covenant that he made with David, for example. He annulled the covenant of the law that he had made with Moses. But see, Christ fulfilled the demands, the obligations, the duties of the law. Nobody was ever Under this covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, nobody was ever saved by their own perfect, faithful obedience unto the law. Not even one. The terms and the conditions of the Mosaic covenant were that if the people obeyed the law perfectly, they would be blessed. But if they failed to uphold it completely, they would be cursed. And not one person, except for one, Jesus obeyed it perfectly. God has always, Old Testament and New Testament alike, it's always been the same. God has always saved by grace alone through faith alone. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10.4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It never did that. It never took away the sins of the people. It was always to point them to Jesus, to their need for atonement, to the penalty for sin, which was death. And the law was a curse upon the people because it was a covenant of works. And everyone, except for Jesus, everyone failed to uphold it. So Christ came. He fulfilled the law. And he established a new covenant, not a covenant of works, not a covenant that depended on human effort, but a covenant of grace through faith. Under the new covenant, the law has three uses. There are people who say the law no longer has any use to the New Testament believer. But Paul says that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And guess what? The law is part of that. So there are still uses for the law for the New Testament believer. There are, in fact, at least three. Calvin identified three. He said, number one, it's to be a mirror that reveals our sinfulness. Number two, it's to restrain evil. And number three, to reveal what is pleasing to God. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He fulfilled it. Now, I believe that Romans 11 is pretty clear in telling us that one day God will graft Israel back in after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's in pretty clear language if you want to read Romans chapter 11. They are currently experiencing what Paul calls a partial hardening. There's still a remnant as there always has been. And when God grafts them back in, it will not be through the Mosaic covenant. That is annulled. That is gone. It'll be through the same new covenant through which the Gentiles have been saved. It'll be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Their rejection of him was finalized with 30 pieces of silver, the same amount, you know, that should instantly ring a bell. That's the same amount that Judas Iscariot was paid for betraying the Lord Jesus. That was the price of a slave who had been so injured or was so inept that he didn't do his work or couldn't do his work. That's how little they thought of him as a shepherd. We must understand that rejecting Jesus leaves a person with only one option, and that is following shepherds who abuse and mislead. Those who refuse to follow Jesus as the good shepherd will follow some other shepherd to their own destruction, to the butcher. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The bad shepherd lays the lives of his sheep down for himself. This passage ends with another scenario, a different scenario. Verses 15 to 18. Zechariah says, Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up In the land, a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. 
Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So now Zechariah acts out another scenario. Now he's not playing the good shepherd. That's what he did in the verses leading up to this. He's not playing the good shepherd. Now he's playing the bad shepherd. He's playing the role of a foolish shepherd. He'll represent the alternative, the the exact opposite of Psalm 23. He'll be the exact opposite of the good shepherd that's described in that psalm. He will not care for the sheep. He will not love the sheep. He will not nourish the sheep. He will not heal the sheep. He will devour them and they will suffer under him. When you think of a shepherd tearing off the hooves of a a sheep, you think, this guy's got to be sick, right? This is just twisted. This is mean. It's cruel. And so that's, that's the opposite of the good shepherd. That's the shepherd that you follow if you're not following the good shepherd. This acting out of God's prophetic word is designed to show that God would give Israel, would turn Israel over to the desires of her heart, which is why Israel would continue to turn to false shepherds, even as they are no longer under God's favor at this point in the living parable. The favor, the staff favor has been broken, and they don't return to the good shepherd anyway. Many wise and conservative commentators believe that this prophecy in in these verses uh, ultimately points to the Antichrist of the end times that we read about in the book of Revelation, uh, who doesn't just uh, just deceive and abuse Israel, but who deceives and abuses everybody in the the whole world. He he abuses the whole world. But ultimately, whoever or or whatever this bad shepherd might be, again, we don't want to don't want to speculate too much, get caught up in speculation, but whoever this might be, verse 17 gives us some solid assurance. It tells us that the good shepherd will triumph over the bad and foolish shepherd. Psalm 23 begins with five simple words. The Lord is my shepherd. Zechariah 11 shows us what that means. And it shows us why it is so important to follow the good shepherd. The question that this chapter forces us to ask of ourselves is whether or not we're part of the crowd, of the masses who have rejected the good shepherd, or if we're one of the few who hear his voice and follow him. Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Few. It's Matthew 7, 14. So the question is, are you one of the few? Because to say the words, to truly say and mean the words, the Lord is my shepherd, means you're following him. It means you're doing what he says. You're following him. You're not following another shepherd who offers something that appeals to your flesh or something that appeals to your pride or something that's more entertaining or more exciting. You're not off doing your own thing on your own. You're following him. You're yielding to his direction even when the road is hard, even when the path is is narrow. The greatest tragedy in all of the universe is when someone rejects Jesus as their shepherd, the good shepherd. So you might ask, what does it look like when somebody rejects him? What does it mean to reject Jesus? It means to value or desire something, anything, more than you desire him. Friends, there is nothing more horrible than rejecting him to the point that he gives a person over to eternal judgment. The Lord carries two staffs among his people today, favor and union. It's a favor that none of his sheep earned for themselves, rather it's one that he earned for them. 
And the union, of course, is with him and with the body of Christ as a whole. And today he calls his sheep to enter into his fold by faith, to follow him and to yield to him in obedience. And so I implore you to examine yourselves. And if you find yourself willing to follow him, no matter what the cost is, if you find that you desire him more than you desire anything else in the world, then you too can say with David and all the saints, surely, not maybe, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us to make sense of this difficult chapter. I pray, Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts, penetrate our minds, and that it would give us a greater desire to follow you. And that if there are competing desires in our hearts, Lord, that we would forsake them, that we would cast them away, that we would give them up to follow you. So search our hearts, Lord. And through your Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted, that we may turn from our sin, turn from our idols, turn from anything that we desire more than you. And that we may just desire you more than anything. We know, Lord, that those, that these words are difficult. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for giving us understanding and wisdom. We pray, Lord, that your work would be done through your word, through meditating on your word. In Christ's name. Take me deeper